Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. Visit www.petechapman.com to get your official director's chair wear, hoodies, hats, jackets, mugs, and other swag, and learn more about your host. All right, folks, welcome to episode 44 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And this one here is a a first ever type of episode for the pod where we're going to go and dig into the conversations that we've had with uh, people in one so-called particular category of work. So we're diving into what we've talked about with our actors on the pod. So today you will be hearing from, and let me make sure I get everybody, you'll be hearing from Issa Rae, you'll be hearing from Dorian Missick, you'll be hearing from Rob McElhenney, you'll be hearing from Simone Missick, Aya Cash, Romney Malko, uh, you'll be hearing from Kaylee Cuoco, and you will also be hearing from my man, Spencer Garrett. So that ain't necessarily the order that you'll be hearing from everybody, but that uh, is inclusive of all. And it won't just be a conversation about uh, acting and actory things because a lot of these people uh, are producers, are writers, have uh, are moguls. You know, they've done a variety of different things, and so um, I just want to, you know, make sure that we put a spotlight on the talent that are in front of the camera. Uh, maybe we'll go through and find another one of these to do with uh, other crafts, and I hope you enjoy. Um, first, though, I don't really have much to report. I, I, I want to leave the, uh, you know, leave the microphone to the actors that you'll hear from. But uh, I can say that I will be wrapping Interior Chinatown uh, this week. Um, at the time of this airing, I'll have uh, one day left altogether. And... Uh, on Monday, I will be starting uh, Mere Mortals, which is the spinoff for Apple TV Plus's Mythic Quest. So I'm excited to uh, hop on that. Uh, I don't know where we'll be as far as a writer's strike, but uh, the script is done for, for that episode, and uh, I know we'll be moving forward, but uh, that's where we are. Uh, that's all I got. I'm kind of finding, I'm kind of, you know, wondering with these beginnings, like how much do I want to take up time and, and update y'all or do I just want to leave it and get right to it? So I think for today, we're going to get right to it and uh, let's get to it. So episode 44 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, a conversation with actors. Speed. The interview. Take one. Hey, this is Issa Rae, and you're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. 
Who do you think of first when you create? I always think about my friends and family. Like, that's that's it. I, I wonder if they'll be interested and if it'll make them laugh, if it'll resonate with them, if it's relatable. And of course, me. And definitely Black people. Well, you pulling for everybody Black? I mean, I am. I can't help it. I kind of love to ask, like, what, what have been some of your favorite moments along this four-season journey? Some of my favorite moments? Wow. I mean... Nothing to me beats the actual writer's room and being able to have so many great, fun, nuanced, deep conversations with the writers in the room. And that includes, you know, predominantly Black people, but people of all different backgrounds, older, younger, gay, straight, you know, Black, white, Asian, Latino. It's just been great to, to and it's just been great to, to tap into kind of what makes us all human and what makes us tick and tell that through a specifically Black lens, a specifically Black female lens. And, you know, I I don't think it's lost on any of us what the kind of stories that we get to tell without being censored or, or filtered. You know, no one has ever, no one at HBO has ever questioned the types of stories that we're telling or told us to try to make it more palatable for a specific audience. It's just been allowed, I've just been allowed to just create and been guided to just try to tell better stories. And that's been such a blessing and just working with great people. Like we, I really get to use the talents of so many people that I admire on, on across all, all, all areas of the productions. Where would you say a lot of directors go wrong and and maybe like let's isolate that to specifically in pre-production oh in pre-production i think in not like i i i love that directors you know want to stay within the the confines of the show sometimes I, I mean i respect that but i we hired you because you are unique and you have a specific style and we want you to bring your own element to the table. So that means I'd love for you to be involved in in costumes, to have a POV, to tell a story there. I'd love for you to like to be thinking about what story you're telling in all different facets because we have a team that's thinking about that. And I, I just love to know that there's a that you're thinking about everything, that there's a vision, that you're like, this is my ship now. Like I'm the captain now and this is where I wanna, you know. Take the boat, and I I respect that, and want I I want all the directors to succeed. Like I want to be like, oh shit, look at we got a signature shot from Kerry Washington, or and it was built on our show. Like it's something that's ours, or we got to bring his style, we got to bring Mo Marable's style specifically to this one episode and elevated it. So I think don't be afraid to bring your own um, stylistic elements and work with every department to to tell the best story. It's your episode. It's yours. That's dope. Any final words of wisdom for the audience here looking to, you know, navigate their way into this industry, whether it's behind the scenes or in front of the camera? Well, I just think that we're in a in a time that feels so pivotal to creation and creativity in creation, just because, you know, we're so much is changing. Like we're at such a, a crossroads in this industry. So I feel like the people who are going to come out on top are are thinking about the future. They're thinking about the holes that are missing and 
that that's where you're going to thrive. I think for me, it was about seeing a hole in content and just taking YouTube and, and running with it while I could and trying to build an audience and using social media to do so. So just thinking about what's here during this time that you can use to, to excel and to get ahead of the game. Hey, everybody, it's Spencer Garrett, and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. When I look at everything that you've done, all the types of roles and TV to film, like, what's your, what's your definition of your job as an actor? My definition of my job as an actor, I think, first and foremost, is to serve the text. You know, as a, as a jobber, as a an itinerant farmer, basically, who goes from gig to gig. I mean, my life has been for 30 years, for the most part, you know, doing lots of episodic and lots of guest spots with some movies in between, you know, lucky enough to do some big, huge movies and some teeny tiny movies and everything in between. I mean, I've, I've covered every SAG contract there is, but mostly, uh, mostly doing guest spots. And so, you know, as you know, you get the get the gig on a Monday and then the Tuesday, you know, you get the script and then you get a fitting the next day and then you're on the set mm. and there's no time to rehearse or, you know, really, you just jump right in. And uh, so I, I, I feel like my job is to serve the writing that is given to me that I'm lucky enough to get. And and then if it's a director that I've worked with before, you know, there's a shorthand sometimes, hopefully. But if it's somebody that I don't know, and if it's somebody that I'm meeting for the first time, I want to try to get to know them. I want to try to watch how they work. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who, maybe because I grew up in the business, Pete, and I grew up around every facet of it and every aspect of it, I, I even after doing it for 35 years, I love everything about it. I love, mm -hmm. I love sitting in the makeup chair for hours, and I love gossiping with the hair and makeup, and I love crafty, and I love all of it. So. I love just sort of being immersed in, you know, in, in the business of it all. And even after doing it, as long as I've been doing it, every time I show up on a set, I think how lucky I am to right. get to do this. So my first job is, I feel like is, is, is serving the writer, showing the text in the way that, you know, the text is meant to be played and then, and then working with the director to, you know, to try to, to serve his vision as well. You know, what was from the first roles that you that you landed, were you finding it was more of a film based career in the beginning or it was a mixture of film and TV? Like how did how did things move forward for you? It was more it was more TV stuff in the beginning, I guess. I mean, I did my first pilot. I got cast in a pilot out of New York in 86 when I was in my early 20s and I was in the middle of, you know, I was waiting tables and tending bar and do all that, doing all that stuff. And I came out here and I did this pilot and I thought, and I'd gotten paid more money than I'd ever seen in my life than, you know, in years of waiting tables. And, and I thought, you know, and they put us all up at the Chateau Marmont and, and I got a nice paycheck, whatever it was back then. And I thought, wow, it's just going to be this way where, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the, I'm on the ride. I'm on the roller coaster up, you know, and then the pilot doesn't get picked up and you go back and you're slinging drinks at the rainbow room again. So, yeah. but, Eventually, I made my way back out here. I, I was living in New York and I said to my mom, who was back there, I said, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to, you know, make my make my stake in it. 
And I came out here and it was kind of like television gig, television gig, television gig. Uh, good guest spots, like really good, interesting stuff. I think the first couple of things were like, you know, 21 Jump Street and Star Trek mm -hmm. Next Generation, where I go back. If I see myself now, I look back and if I see a rerun of any of those early things. And I know how green I was. I know how truly uh -huh. unformed I was. I had some I had some decent instincts that were instilled in me from, you know, from my acting teachers, from Mr. Meisner and the people that I studied with. But I was really green. And right. if if the 57 year old me could go back in time, I would whisper in that kid's ear and say, you know, listen more. Yeah. I, I would have I'd have I'd have advice. But it's interesting to see that early stuff of mine because I see the beginnings of an actor who had some pretty good instincts and knew 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 his way around a set. And but it took me a couple of years to really kind of find my sea legs. Right. It took me about took me about two or three years of grinding out guest spots. And then and then little roles in movies started to come, like little, you know, parts in movies, and then Air Force One maybe right. five or six years into it, Air Force One happened. And I caught the eye of some casting people that were doing features. Right. I was sort of in that, I think I was sort of in that hamster wheel of of casting people who knew me and who knew that I was, you know, I was reliable and I could deliver. And so I was getting gigs pretty consistently. And then I caught the eye of some some feature casting people and started to get more movies about about seven or eight years in. But right. I think in the in my first 10 years in the business out here, I, I'd like to think that I got to be known as, as a guy you could bring off the bench and could hit you a solid double, you know, mm -hmm. or give you, you know, or give you a solid 10 minutes on the court, you know, like a I, I wanted to be a reliable guy. I wanted people to think right. of me as a professional, a guy who shows up on time, who hits his mark, who doesn't bullshit around, you know, who plays well with others, you know, right. for lack of a better phrase, and, you know, and, and, and delivers. Let's talk about the audition process, right? For those of you out there who are auditioning actors, what do you, what do you? Well, it's, first of all, it's different now with the pandemic. And even before the pandemic, the casting process seems to have moved into self-tape. Uh, <laughs> there's less and less in-person casting going on anymore. I think the last thing I auditioned for in person, to be honest with you, was the Lakers thing, the HBO thing. Mm -hmm. And since then, the majority of it has been self-tape. And I'm, I'm having to relearn my own audition process. It's like acting in a vacuum. There's something right. from, for me, I love the room. I love the, I love the juice of the room. I love the energy of going in and, you know, there's five or six people sitting there. And you feed off of that. And I always have. And for me, it's always been, it's been a chance to act. It's a mm -hmm. chance to perform in front of people because that's what we do. And so now with that being taken away and the self-tape stuff, it's different. I think my process has changed. I, I'll get an audition. My thing is I will take it and I will break it down as much as possible. I'm, I've never been one to... I've never been one to learn it 100%. I like not knowing it entirely word for word and it gives me an ability to 
it gives me an ability to improvise within the, right. within the confines of the scene. It allows me to, I will, I will take my, I'll get the sides. I'll read it two or three times and just enough. So I have a sense of it. And then if I'm in the room, I'll be able to read it as if I'm improvising it and that, it, and that it's, it's coming organically. Right. I mean, I'll take the, I'll take the words and basically if it's a, if it's a courtroom scene or whatever the context of the scene is, I will, I'll try to find out where, where, where I need to be emotionally in, you know, I'll take it down in little pockets, I call them. Mm -hmm. And I will just write down for myself, you know, where I think I am in this particular moment. Do you feel when you're doing the audition, particularly in this Zoom world, that mm -hmm. you are manufacturing moments now? Or, yes. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. So how do you how do you approach that? It's weird. I mean, I found whether it's whether you're doing it over Zoom or a self tape. Sometimes, as an actor, you'll go in to read for a casting director that is not an actor. A, a lot of times, as actors, you'll go in and and you'll read for somebody that just might be a terrific casting director, but the really, really great ones will hire a reader. They'll hire an mm -hmm. actor to read with an actor. But a lot of times you will have the casting director that doesn't have a background in acting. Uh, mm -hmm. I wish every casting assistant and every casting director would go and take an acting class so they learn the language of, you know, how to speak to actors and, and because it's, it's different. I mean, they're very good at their jobs, but in terms of when you're reading, and you're reading with a casting director and the director is sitting there in the room and the casting director is not necessarily giving you the emotional feedback in that scene. Right. I find as an actor, you have to, you have to, for lack of a better phrase, you have to manufacture their performance as well. So you mm -hmm. have to, you have to act as though they are giving right. you what, what an actor would give you. Right. Uh, and that's not always easy. You know, you have to act as if, you know, you're getting that, that, that give and take that you would, that you would right. normally get. And that's tough. And especially when you're doing it, when you're doing a, a self tape, you're, and you're acting in a vacuum and there's no energy in the room. The advantage, the advantage of that is that you can do it 73 times until you feel like you've gotten it right. The disadvantage is that you can do it 73 times okay. and that you could do it right. so many times that you get in your own head and you get in your own right. way. Right. So as we've gotten into into the into the self tape world more and more, I find that I'm trying to just like two three takes and just l let right. it go because otherwise yeah. uh, otherwise I'll be there for hours trying to pick down the minutia and get it you know get it exactly right and you never will you know right. it's not a lot of people want the performance that you're gonna give on the day in the camera in the audition room and that's just not right. going to happen. So I have to, I've got to learn how to just be okay with myself and, and, you know, give it away up to the universe and, you know, and hope you get the gig. But, right. uh, but the manufacturing, the performance is, has been for me a, a tricky one for a long, long time. Uh, but a lot of good, a lot of casting directors are good actors too. And that really, really right. helps. Yo, this is Dorian Missick, a.k.a. DJ Tailwind Turner from the ABC show For Life. And you're listening to Let's Shoot with my man Pete Chapman. What was the first story that had an impact on you? Whether a film or, or even like 
I don't know, something like even passed down through your family, but something where you felt the impact of a good story? I come from a storytelling family, man. So it's just like, uh, it's tough to say anything, any one specific thing. I mean, one of the, one of my earliest memories of like family members telling stories was, it was an, an event, it was like a block party that I was at, you know, that my, I was there and one of my cousins, he ended up, it's crazy. He's like, one, the, the people who hosted the block, one of the houses that hosted the block party, they had this big ass dog and they kept the dog on the balcony of their house because the dog was wreaking havoc on the neighborhood. Where was this in, in Atlanta or Jersey or this was actually in Queens. I was living in Jersey at the time, but it was it was a black party in Queens. All right. Yeah, I w- we went to one of my cousin's houses in Queens. And the dog started pissing from the balcony down to the street. And the and it was in the, you know, from the fire escape. And so the piss was coming down. And one of my cousins thought it was like water. So he like jumped underneath the piss and started dancing in, in circles. And letting the water get all in. And the girlfriend was laughing at him, even though he was getting pissed on. Like, he didn't know it was pissed. Right. And the shit was hilarious to me. And then my father was recounting that incident to somebody that he worked with. Right. And the way he told it, even though I was there, he made me listen to it like I wasn't there. You know what I'm saying? And that was the first time when I realized the power of, like, really painting the story because... I mean, literally, I, I was like, at the, I was listening with bated breath and I was right there. Like, I watched it happen. And I got a bunch of situations like that with my family where, like, they just are great, great at holding court. Man. Let's, let's talk about how you, how you got, your, got your career going, man. Like, let's go from, go from that first job to maybe the big break. Dang. Yeah, well, you know, like I wanted to do it from the time I was little. Once I started... Once I decided, yo, this is something I want to do, I started recognizing and noticing kids in stuff more often, you know? Because you got to imagine, like, you know, this is before Disney Channel and all of that kind of stuff. So, like, to find a child on television was not quite as easy as it is now. <laughs> like, a kid could just watch, like, Disney Channel and their whole world could be, like, things of children and things that kids do. Right? When I was growing up, it was like, we had, like, Arnold on Stokes, <laughs> Webster, you know, Ricky Schroeder, and it wasn't like a whole lot of images. And so I think when I saw like Goonies or something like that, I was like, yo, you know, no, actually Goonies, I auditioned for that movie. So it must have been something before that because Goonies was one of my first auditions as a kid. So something that I saw with kids in it and it was like maybe E.T. or something and was like, oh, like I could actually do this now if I wanted to. And it right. could be like an actual job. So I, you know, I wanted to do it. And my teacher at the time when I was, I think, probably like in sixth or fifth grade or so, her son is an actor and he was an act, a child actor. And so I would ask her questions about like how he got into it. But I was kind of a pest to her. And she was like, yo, you know, he's he listens in class. He's a good kid. He's not bad like you. Like he doesn't talk out of, you know, talk out of turn and and stand up in class and he doesn't do any of that. So she was like, that's what it takes to be an actor. Like, you don't, you don't do that. You don't have what it takes. And so I asked if I could go to one of his classes and she was like, yeah, I'll take you to his class. So I went to an acting class, like to observe, like on a Saturday afternoon and my mom came, we drove into Manhattan and went to this class. And when we went there, they were, they let me join in on the warm up. Like I couldn't participate in actual class, but they let me do the warm up. And for the warm up, they was like, yo, do some movements to stretch out and all of that. Yeah. You'd be a tree. 
Yeah, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shake it out, shake it out, shake it out. Like that kind of thing. And then they were like, yo, imitate what each kid is doing. So they would pick out a kid and say, you know, do what Tommy's doing. Do what Susie's doing. And so we, so when it came time to do what I was doing, I started popping and locking. And none of the kids could really do that. So then it just became a thing. And everybody was just watching me breakdance. Like, yo, this is crazy. What the hell is this? Right. And it turns out there was some people observing our class that were casting directors looking for kids to breakdance in a commercial. So it was just like the time it was just right, you know. So that that was a Saturday. I was on the set on my first job by like that Wednesday or Thursday. See? So then I was Good. like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. There's a lot that's ill, man. I, I didn't know that story, but like somebody's always watching. You never know, know who's in the room. And you always try and show that you're the best. And it's like, and that, and if you always do that and you and you got talent and vision, it's gonna come together. Now, not not on your first day for everybody, but you know, that that's how that those those are the ingredients of that moment. That's dope. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy, man. You know, you just like you said, man, you just gotta let your light shine, man. You know what I'm saying? Ultimately, that's what it is. It was just I was too young and naive to be nervous or to even realize that that lady was trying to play me. Like I was just too young for that. You know what I'm saying? I just was like, yo, you know, okay, cool. I took it as a challenge. Like some, like a kid telling me like, yo, you can't touch the net. Right. And then you jump and touch it. Like, that's how I looked at it. Like it didn't really even, it wasn't until I got older and started telling that story that people were like, yo, she's a horrible human being. Right. And there was like a couple other things that she did to me as a teacher. That was true. She was a horrible human being, but Hey man, out of out of out of that horrendousness, you know, some greatness came out of it. Hey, there it is. That's how you grow, man. Well, talk about the the big break. I know what it was. I think I went with you to the premiere, but what was what was your big break and, and how'd you get it? Oh yeah, a big break. No question. I think that my introduction to the industry was was two weeks' notice, without a doubt. It's a movie with Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant. I mean, once again, that's the one of them situations where it was like I just showed up because. I ended up getting that because I was going to these workshops that you do that they got shut down now. But it was like a thing where you would like basically pay to play. Like you pay to see casting directors, you know what I'm saying? And that was like a way for me to kind of break into the television thing because a lot of these people weren't coming to see plays. At least not the plays I was doing. Because it wasn't like I was doing plays at the public theater. I'm doing them at, you know, Joe Schmo Theater. Nobody really was trying to come out there. So this was how I was getting to meet people. So I met the casting director through that, through one of those workshops. It, w- it was really just me bumping and figuring out things. I mean, I knew what I liked. I knew I liked being on stage and I knew I needed to eat. So that's where the commercials came in. I didn't necessarily like doing them, but, you know, they paid really well. So at that time, so I, I knew to kind of do that. But then I, I, I just had to figure out how can I get seen by the people who I needed to be seen because I knew my product was good. I was like, how can I get it in front of the right buyers, you know? And so the workshop was just the thing. And, you know, people saying like, look, it's a waste of money. And listen, it was, I pissed in the ocean. I spent a lot of money meeting people who probably just showed up to get money and leave. But the one job that I did do paid for all of those things and then some. And the thing is, I got commercials out of those workshops. So those things more than paid for themselves. Like, so I kind of stand by that, but I understand why some people think it's a waste. But the difference, though, is, and then we'll get back to two weeks notice, but the difference is, like, what you're bringing to this, like, 
whack scenario, right? You know what I mean? Because like, even for me, like I, I've done a variety of like programs or like workshops and it's like, okay, I, I can look here and say like, well, 99% of the people that have ever gone through these have never actually achieved the target that's being sold. But I'm looking at that and saying, they're not me. You know what I mean? And like, how are they? And, and I don't know what they're doing, but I just want to get in the room because if I can get in the room, then at least the, you know, I have an opportunity to miss the shot. Serious. And I was, I, my thing was, I ain't missing no shots. Exactly. You know, that's how I looked at it. I was just like, yo, what they separate me from that dude is, you know, the, the, the right aging or the right, you know what I'm saying? Like, I was just like, my thinking at that time was just like, yo, all you got to do is see me and you'll know you need to rock with me. Like, like you know, I I didn't think twice about it. I, it never occurred to me, like, am I good enough? Which is probably, like, good that I didn't think about that. <laughs> like, I didn't think, like, I'm only here because I'm not good enough. I was like, I'm only here because y'all don't have opportunity to see how good I am. And exactly. so I was like, yo, whatever it takes, let me just get there and let me just do it. And then when you see me, you're not going to deny me. You know, like, it did. It, it just it just seemed like A plus B equals C, like, <laughs> and and as it and indeed it was. So that's that's how you got on the radar of the of the two weeks notice casting director. Or yeah, okay. yeah, I met her at a workshop. Matter of fact, not even the casting director. It was like her associate, like you know what I'm saying. Who I met at the workshop. I met Janice Wild, and she's Eileen Stargers. She was Eileen Stargers' associate. Now she's probably her partner. But uh, I met Janice. And she told she told me that she took my picture after that that I gave her. She took my headshot and put it next to her desk with a sticky on it that said "Must find work." Because she was like, "Yo, this kid is good. We have to find something for him," you know. Right. And it sat there for months. Like, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I just went back to doing what I was doing. And then all of a sudden, I did get. I managed to get an agent through a play that I was doing. But it was like a the kind of agent that is really good for theater. Like they would have kept me doing plays and plays and plays and plays. And they, they kid, I was doing regional theater all over the place. It was great. I got no problems with them. But when it came time for like the film and television stuff, they're really only good at getting you like the one or two liners. And so they like submitted me for the movie for two weeks notice to play like, you know, like a bellman or bellhop or something like that. Something just, you know, quick in and out. And that's when the casting director jumped on it. Like, yo, maybe we should bring this guy in for this. The character was a fat Italian dude, but she was like, this kid is so funny. And it, this movie's very white. I remember her telling me that. <laughs> and she said, literally said that to me, it's very white. And so they wanted, they needed to do something. And so, you know, they, they brought me in and I did like maybe seven or eight auditions. And, and like three of them were with Hugh Grant and then ended up getting the part. And then that was it. Like, then I was then I was in the game, you know, then like ICM signed me. Like, you know, like it was like all the real stuff that's supposed to happen happened then. You know, like once that happened, it was like I'm in the door. I got a publicist. I, I became the guy you know now. Like <laughs> then from that point on, I was I was busting. I came out, I came out swinging. You know what I'm saying? Like when that hit, it was a rat because when when that came out, it was number one, it was a you know, it was a big deal. Hugh Grant and Sandy were big, big stars at the moment, you know, and it was like sure. A big holiday film. This was two thousand two. Yeah, we shot it. Yeah, we started shooting six six months after the towers came down. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so this was it. This came out December two thousand two, and and they, you know, 
when this movie was done, it was like a big deal. Like, because this was a, a role that would have gone to like a, a, a comedian of some sort, you know, like a big name comedian because it was a meaty role. Right. And so the fact that it was like this unknown guy, it, it kind of created a buzz around me. And then, you know, I had a lot of meetings set up and then Sandra was pretty good about that too. Like making sure I met the right people. I was taking a lot of those meetings that they were setting up for me as yeah. a result of me just doing the movie. Before the movie came out, it was already like, you got to meet this kid. Right. And so, you know, I kind of felt like the toast of the town, you know, it was easy. And then that led to like me getting a deal, a development deal at ABC, a talent development deal, mm-hmm. which, you know, got me into the TV world, you know. Any parting words you want to share with the audience about storytelling or the industry or what, why we'll always need stories or anything at all, man? The same advice I give to any actor is the same advice I give to any creative. You live or die on your own choices, man. End of the day, you live or die on your own choices. So if you're gonna dance, might as well do the dance you do best, man. Like it, like bring your story to the table, man. Whatever we're each, every last one of us is unique because we've had unique experiences. May not be tragic, it may not be whatever, but it's just unique. And it's like find your unique voice and don't hide it. Like bring it to the table like that. Because at the end of the day, when the smoke clears, the people who are celebrated are the people who stood out, not the people who just got along, you know? And so it's like, yeah, you know, I, I could work my hardest to be in the middle or I could just do something on the outskirts and then, you know, let's see if you notice. Hey, this is Rob McElhenney and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. What, what was the first story that had an impact on you where you were like, man, that was that was well told, whether it was like at the water cooler or like somebody in the family or a movie? Wow. The first story? Yeah. Like any kind of story? I remember, I mean, just being read to, I remember my dad reading me The Giving Tree. Did you ever read that book when I was when I was a kid? And I remember that having like a real emotional impact on me. Probably that was maybe the first story I can really remember where I just took it with me. And it's still, you know, when, I, and then of course I forgot about it for 30 years, 40, 30 years. And then when I have my own kids re-engage with it, it's just as, just as affecting. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I think of, for me, it's always like, it's, it, it's super late in life, but it's do the right thing. Like, mm-hmm first move like like movie I watched and I was like oh man like I, I know these folks and like I I always talk about like when Giancarlo Esposito's Jordans got scuffed mm-hmm. uh, actually I think you have the same pair of those Jordans in white and I'm like man like I, I recognize that on screen <laughs> and I was like maybe I could be a filmmaker it's a little yeah bad, you know yeah well in terms of like filmmaking or, or movies that really or, or you know I, I would actually say that it was probably not a movie that got me it would have been it would have been a TV show. And, and it was, honestly, I think it was probably this, the Thursday night lineup on NBC when I was probably about eight till I was about 12. Yeah. And it would go Cosby Show, mm. Family Ties, Cheers, and Night Court. That's a killer and Killer lineup. <laughs> and I wasn't old enough, like I wasn't allowed to stay up to watch Night Court I think because my dad felt like it was a little bit too adult, but also it was 9.30, so we had to go to bed. But I found that a little bit later in, in life. But those first three shows, Cosby Show, Family Ties, and Cheers, 
I just remember watching them over and over and over again. And then when they went into syndication, I just couldn't get enough. I mean, I've seen every episode of all yeah. of those shows. Do you, cre- you write, create, produce, act? Like what, what's the one thing if you had to pick that people, that you would do over and over again? It's hard to say. It depends on the day because when you're, you know, when you're writing, writing is the hardest part. I find it's the most, it's it's the most enraging and and terrifying because you're just walking into an empty whiteboard, and you have to fill that that whiteboard. But when it's working, and when you and when you are feeling like like you're in the zone, and it's just it's just you you crack through whatever that problem is you're having or that story issue. It's just so it's such a powerful feeling because you are, you are creating something from, from nothing. And that, and that just feels so good. But the, the thing about acting that's fun is that you, you get to share that with other people and you're, you're sharing an, an emotional experience with, with other emotion forward people. And so, and that, and that can be, that can be, that can still be comedic, right? When you're vibing with somebody on a comedic level, it's still an emotional and very personal relationship that you're having with them. And and I find that, especially on a comedy, I find that to just be more fun in and of itself. It's less, pr- there's less pressure and you're just there to kind of have fun. And that's ultimately the job of the writers and the producers of the direct and the directors is to allow the space for those people to enjoy themselves and have fun. And that's why actors get coddled as much as they do. Hi, this is Shannon Baker Davis. I edited Kindred and Impeachment and a new Marvel show that's coming out. This is Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weasley Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television commercials and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him a start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration. This book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions is available on Amazon and anywhere else you get your books. Don't forget about your local mom and pop shops, people. This is Keith Powell. I'm a writer, director, and actor, and you're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. So you were mentioning, we were we were talking about like the the byproduct of growing up around strong black women and how that kind of affects your creativity. Like what what did that? How did that inform your art? And well, your well, that's the thing. Like like I I grew up with four women in my house and all of them wanted to always remind me that they were strong black women. So that was in my, that was like drilled into my head from day one. And I think my family is, was really, really passionate about education and history and, and about black history, because I don't, I think that black people don't get enough of their history. A lot of our history was taken from us. And so history was so very important to our family. And that's how I became a storyteller because I wanted to talk about black history. Our family, my family, my great grand, my, my great grandfather, my, my grandmother's father was the first black principal of Delaware. He got his master's degree at Columbia 
And education became a major component in his life because his grandfather was a man named Harmon Unthank, who That's he a great was name Harmon Unthank. The Unthanks are is the is the family is my is my grandmother's family. The Unthanks. I don't thank you. I unthank you. And the Unthanks were given reparations. They were given 40 acres. Actually, they were given more than 40 acres. Where were they? What state? North Carolina. North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. And, and it later, it later became a big city that I now can't remember in North Carolina. And Harmon Unthank became a major civil rights leader. And his children became educated and, and one of his children is, is a, was a prominent doctor. One of his children was a prominent architect in Portland, Oregon. There's a park named after the Unthanks right. because of that. And so, so history, holding on to that kind of history was so important to us that I had no choice but to kind of be a storyteller and, and tell stories. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, you graduate NYU, did you, you were doing commercials while at NYU? And uh, so, yeah. And so what kind of, was it, let me transition into television or like, how did, how did that even happen for you? There was always like, for better or worse, my career has always kind of found me. I never found my career. And, and the only way that I would find, the only way that I can answer that would find my career, that I was an active participant in it is an active participant in discovery of myself as an artist. So it was always learning and growing and changing as an artist. And then an opportunity would show itself. And, and so it was, I did a Wendy's commercial because I did a, a, a fucking play at NYU that somebody found me in where I really worked my ass off on that play. And somebody found, a manager found me in that play and said, you know, can I put you in commercials? I went and auditioned for maybe 300 commercials before I booked my first Wendy's commercial, but I booked it right as I was graduating NYU. And then Wendy's commercial allowed me to shoot a Starburst commercial, which allowed me to have enough money to not have a day job, which allowed me to... How, how, much, how much does a commercial, like a national commercial like that make somebody? In the early 2000s, I think that like I was a spokesperson for Starburst. So I think I made like a hundred grand off of that yeah. in the early 2000s. Just off a 30 second spot or, or like it a It was campaign. a number of spots. It was a campaign. Yeah. It was like yeah. commercials. It was, it was, it was commercials. It was radio spots. Wow. And so, I, and you know, it, I, I, and I, you know, I didn't, I was a kid and, and, I had just graduated from school. I was still doing theater. I was doing theater plays, but it allowed, it freed up my days to audition for things. And, and then my grandmother got sick and I packed up from New York City and moved back to Delaware. And in Delaware, I started learning how to kind of do things for myself and on my own. Right. And then I was reborn in Delaware doing Contemporary Stage, which was the name of the theater company that I ran. And that led me to directing 
plays for the theater that one of them was going to go on a national tour starring Keith David and Jasmine Guy. Keith David is the man. I love Keith I was yeah. 26 years old and Keith David, I directed Keith David and it was, a, it was an incredible experience. But anyway, from there, I was going to, I was going to fire our set designer and I had never fired anybody before. And I walked into the set designer's agent's office and because this play with Keith David was going to go on a national tour that I had directed. And I was like, I wrote it. It's not you. It's me letter. (laughs) And I gave it to the agent and that agent said, okay, great, great, great. So what are you doing right now? And I was like, you know, I'm about to direct this thing. I think I think I might move to Los Angeles. I was chasing a girl out in Los Angeles and, you know, and, and then they're like, well, in the meantime, while, before you go to LA, can you audition for some stuff? I was like, sure. And I auditioned, and the first and only thing they sent me on was 30 Rock. What's the best note you were ever given as an actor? And, and what's the best direction you've given an actor? An early note that I gave to another actor that has stuck with me. It was, what, it was during when I was directing Keith David and Jasmine Guy in and, and this play. And Jasmine was having a very difficult time memorizing up. It, it's a two-hand, it was a two-character play, so there was just a lot of text that both of them had to memorize. And Jas, Jasmine was having a particularly hard time memorizing one particular paragraph mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a speech she had to give. And, and every time we got to in rehearsal, it, like, you know, she'd fumble and it would be really rough and, and, and there was a lot of... There was, she had to really fight for it. And then finally, she was getting so frustrated. She came to me and she said, Keith, there's this line in this monologue that trips me up, this sentence that trips me up. Can I just cut it? If I cut it, I'll know this monologue like that. It's just that one line trips me up. And I said, no. (laughs) No, what I said to her was, what I said to her was, Jasmine, I want you to go away tonight and figure out why the playwright put that line, that one sentence into the play and come back to me and explain why that one sentence is there. And if you, and if you can't figure out why, then we'll cut it. But I have a feeling that that sentence is in there for a reason. Okay. And she said, okay, fine, 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 fine. She went away and she came back and she said, oh my God, I know this whole thing. It's like, well, what happened? And she said, well, first of all, there was a, 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 I learned the line wrong. So I learned, I learned this particular sentence where it's like a you instead of a, a me or whatever it was, like a little word, a little article. Right. And and she goes, and it's interesting because that one sentence now tells me about the entire character that I had been overlooking. And I did nothing but just say, you can cut it. <laughs> you right. can cut it if you can tell me, wh- if you tell me why. Right. But it was a, a lesson to me, and it was a lesson to me as an actor, and a lesson to me as a director, and it was a lesson to me as a writer, that everything is there for a reason. 
and and you can't just like willy-nilly go past it. Right. You have to explore it and you have to figure out why it's there. What three traits do you think someone needs to make it in this industry? Stick-to-itiveness. So fortitude I, is, I guess, the, the better word for that. Open-mindedness. Mm-hmm. Passion. This is Simone Missick, and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. How'd you get your start? How did I get my start? I mean, let's see. I, I minored in theater at Howard, which was a huge kind of leap for me. I started out as an English major. Always knew I wanted to be an actor. I was too scared to go after it, to go full throttle going into college because I knew that it was the one thing that I really wanted to do and yet had no pathway for it, hadn't done it in high school. You know, you always have those kids who are like, well, I'm in drama. And I was like, they're lames. So I, I just played sports and played music. I was a violinist and I played basketball, ran track. And didn't tell anybody in my super supportive ass family that I wanted to be an actor. When I I moved to L.A., I booked a film called The Road to Sunday. Uh And it was about a woman whose husband died unexpectedly. They had been working on a movie in the film producers. And so she wanted to carry on and complete the movie. And she teams up with this diva, you know, white guy who's kind of well known, but he, you know got his own bad reputation and this is like supposed to be his way of like getting in the indie world and rebranding himself and you know the fish out of water all of that and I met a really good friend of mine who wrote and directed voicemail Thomas Frazier that was where he and I met but that was such an amazing learning experience for me because the film low budget feature film the woman who wrote it this was a labor of love for her and So we started out and she's got these huge ideas. So we're flying to Baltimore to shoot this film. I was like, this is, this is amazing. This is my first film in LA. I was maybe there for like three, five months. And now somebody's flying me to Baltimore to film. Any final kind of words of wisdom that you would want to share? You know, I, I think about a couple of different visuals that I often had when I was working, striving, waiting. Dorian and I would joke that it felt like pissing in the ocean. (laughs) And it's not. There was another one that kind of relayed back to your boat analogy, which is send out improper ships. You know, we always feel like it has to be perfect. It has to be, you know, truly furnished. Everything has to be on it. It's got to be just right. And it's like, send out the ships. Just send them out. And somebody is going to let your boat dock on their pier. You know what I mean? Like, just... Send it out. And the other thing is just be nice. You never know who you might work for. The person that you treated like shit might be the person that helped you get your next job. It might be the person who said, no. It might be the person who said, yeah, take a chance on that guy. I remember that. I got a good feeling about that person. I don't know what it is. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, And so because you, as you've, pointed out so many people have worked with so many people where we find ourselves it's like these circles that just keep crossing over Uh, and 
And, you know, you got to be nice to everybody on the way up because you might see them on the way down. And <laughs> you better be happy when you do. And they better be happy to see you. And then the other thing is like, honestly, never give up. Like, you know, my family, we affectionately say I was a 10-year overnight success. You know, the yeah. people, they were like, where did she come from? And I was like, I was probably your servant at the Cheesecake Factory, you know? And thankfully, I had that tribe around me who poured into me positivity and prayer and love. Uh, but at a certain point, it had to come from within as well to know like, no, this is what I'm supposed to do. It's not happening in the timetable that I thought. But if I don't give up, it will happen. And I'm seeing friends of mine, people that I was on the, you know, on the circuit with, you know, struggling, trying to get jobs with who are now, you know, leads of shows, recurrings on shows, working, directing. I mean, you know what I mean? Look at what has happened for your career just in the past five, you know, six years when it comes to directing. That is not, it, it doesn't come from giving up, you know? So if you just keep doing the work, put your head down and keep trying, you know, it can happen. Hi, it's Aya Cash, and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. I was going to ask you the difference between later preparing like for a role and preparing for like an appearance on a talk show. I think it's about being vulnerable. I think anytime you're vulnerable and you step away from that, if you're truly in a moment and truly vulnerable, you step away from that and you kind of think, oh my God, what have I, what have I shown? Because in that vulnerability, you're not in control. And uh, as someone who very much likes to be in control, that, that doesn't, all, you don't walk away feeling great all the time. The truth is I also can be bad. I mean, th- that some of those auditions were bad. And you know when you're not doing your best work. So, so it's a combination of, of both. In terms of talk shows, it's interesting that you brought that up since I think a lot about this, the performance of self is a completely different thing than acting. And that is, is still very challenging for me because when now I've been acting for so long, I, I understand how to do that. I don't necessarily know how to act like myself and give that to an interview or a, some sort of press event. And I also, Kelly and I actually talk about this a lot. Like there, there's also a question of how much do you want to give up yourself? That when I first started out, I was like, I want, I want everyone to feel and see all of me. And then as you go, you're like, eh, that's okay. I, yeah. I also don't need you to see all that. And I don't want you to see all that. And that some of that's mine. And you see certain people in our business who are really not great interviews who can mm-hmm. kind of like tell the joke and and do the thing, but they're very held. And I don't judge them for that. It's a very bizarre thing to, to play yourself. What is the story that you, if you have one that you think back to as being the moment you recognize the power of telling stories or, or, or hearing stories? So, my mom is a writer. She's a poet and a novelist. And every night before bed, she would read me a poem. So I feel like I, I had a lot of that sort of storytelling growing up. I remember, the, it's so funny, this just came up. And I recited this whole thing from memory that I haven't thought about in probably, you know, 25 years. 
And the other person I was talking to knew it too. And I don't, I haven't like looked it up and remembered where it's from. It's not exactly a poem, but there's this, I remember my mom saying this to me when I was a kid. One bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. A deaf policeman heard the noise. He got up and shot the two dead boys. If you don't believe my story, it's true. Ask the blind man he saw too. <laughs> and, uh, and wait, what age were you told that? Oh God, probably way too young. <laughs> dead and probably like five or six. Okay, okay. So I have these like little pockets of, of stories in my mind. And I love that one because it, it's about things that are both true and untrue, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, which, is, which is most of life. I also, on a more sort of like clear note, I, Princess Bride was probably the first movie that I ever really was like, oh, this is, this is, this is some good shit. It, is there any difference in your prep between TV and film or even broadcast and cable? Because I know you've done, you know, you had your Will and, well, Will and Grace, that was when it, the reboot came, but you had Modern Family and, and things like that. Like, is there, is there a difference for you in how you step into that? Really? Hey, I kind of think of acting as just acting. And even like, even between theater and film and TV, there were some technical things I had to transition into, but I don't, like, I don't audition for things differently. I don't, I don't go in and be like, well, this is a theater performance. I have to do this. I kind of just think of now acting is acting. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say there's a difference in, in how I prepare. I also have done very little series regular work on on network. So my experiences are sort of the experiences of a guest star, which is a very different experience on set than being a regular. Being being a guest is just that. You are a guest and you are hopping into you're coming to someone else's home and you're eating what's in front of you. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're vegan. It doesn't matter if you're vegan. <laughs> you show up, you you speak when spoken to sometimes. <laughs> you you know, you learn the rules of that show. And I did a lot of guest stars before I became a series regular. And one of the gifts of You're the Worst was that it, Stephen hired a bunch of guest stars. Like all the regulars were people who were mm. doing guest stars for years. We were all, it was our, all of our first big job. And right. so it was just such a happy set because we were like, oh, we get to make the rules and we want to have a good time and be friendly. Guest stars would come on to our show and be like, it's so nice here. And I was like, it's so sad that that's not normal. What up, y'all? This is Romney Malcolm and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. What was the the first story that had an impact on you? I think one of the first stories that had an impact on me was that my great-grandmother was one of the first women to drive in Trinidad and Tobago. She was a playwright. She was a midwife and a landlord. She did it all. And she was like just very respected and very well off and very wise. And she was also like, and she was Jewish at that. Mm. And I was like, Hearing about her and 
her philosophies and her life was like very inspiring because it seemed so different from the life that we had been living, you know? So it, right, it made right. me feel, it made me feel connected to someone because I had similar aspirations. Right. And so did that ever play in driving you toward, you know, telling stories in music or seeking stories in, in TV and film or was it just kind of like... No, because I didn't really hear about it until afterwards. It wasn't until later on in the game where something interesting where it's like when I actually started becoming more successful in film, when I, actually in music and then film, that my, my mom started reminding me of these things. And the way that it even came up was, I had heard this stuff when I was younger, but the way it came up was we came across my grandmother's li driver's license, my great-grandmother's driver's license. And then the stories in there, you know what? You're okay. so much like your great-grandmother. And then we started going down the whole thing and I then the stories started coming back. But I think that just knowing that it was something that was happening or had happened within my family probably gave me a little added confidence. And yeah. also just being someone who grew up in a household where my family encouraged me contributed greatly as well. Because my mother was a model. She, that's how she got to the United States of America. She won a modeling competition in Trinidad and Tobago and they sent her here to compete. While she was here, she met my father. They had me. And so my mother continued modeling, but she would have me model too. I was this big. I was like a foot and a half tall, but I was out there modeling too. And, you know, Man. that just kind of acclimates you to the stage and the, you know. Did any of these folks that you met along the way, you know, like in music, for example, help like cheerlead for you or, or kind of introduce you to the transition to film? Or was it always like just a pivot that you, that you figured out how to make happen? You know, kind of. After I did that, I started my first internet company. After I did rap and jingles, I started an internet company. And at the time, it was considerably successful for me within like, I don't know, man, within three months, I think I was making like $3,000 a month. And within a few months of that, I was making $250,000 a month in 1996, 97. So that was a big wow. deal. That was a big deal for me. And so I thought that I would never be involved in entertainment again. And I actually got a phone call from a guy named Andrew Stephanopoulos who worked at Virgin Records when I first signed there in 1989. And Andrew was now working with John Leguizamo. And Andrew and John Leguizamo was doing a movie called The Pest. And he said that he wanted to rap like the animated cat for Paul Abdul. Well, coincidentally, when I was working on at Virgin Records, I had written all that stuff for that animated cat. I'd written a bunch of stuff for the animated cat, right? And that's what he heard and wanted to do that. So he literally reached out to me, linked me and John Leguizamo. And John Leguizamo's wife, her name is Yelba. She was like, John, you hang out with comedians all day. Romney is funny as hell. What? Why can't he be in your movie? And so he asked me to audition and I auditioned and I auditioned and they called me back and they called me back like six times. But then there's this thing called the mix match session where you kind of go off script a little bit, you swap. And I didn't have that experience. So I failed at that. And so as a result of that, I didn't get the job. But the casting agent went and told everybody that I was her favorite audition of all time. 
And so pilot season came around and Hollywood just started calling my house. It was like almost a year later. And people, huh. Hollywood started calling, we want you to audition for this. And I didn't even have an agent. And a bunch of agents started, and when I told them that I didn't have an agent, they started calling agents and telling the agents about me. The agents started calling my house. And I ended up signing with a lady named Lisa DeSanto. And DeSante, Lisa DeSante. And it just because she just seemed to be the most genuine. Right. And that led to, that led to me becoming, you know, an actor. What three traits do you think someone needs to have to make it in this industry? You cannot underestimate the amount of hard work that it actually takes. I think that when people, one of the biggest mistakes people make in this business is that they underestimate the, they underestimate how much work it'll take. And so when they start facing the challenges, the psychological challenges as well, they, they get discouraged and quit. No, that's actually par for the course. So one would be, don't underestimate how much hard work it takes. Two would be, you really do need to learn your craft, hone in on your craft. You need to study, study, learn it. Because the beautiful thing about, even if it's just an acting class, as an actor, right? You're in an acting class. Every time you go up there and nail a scene, you might, you might be terrible the first six months of acting class. You just go up there and nail a scene. You're building a confidence you can't build anywhere else. So now you have a confidence in the cold weed and the cold weed can get you the job. Mm. And you have to give yourself the opportunity to exercise that muscle. And then the third thing, which we already talked about, is that this, this concept of like blowing up instantaneously, yo, this shit ain't TikTok, fam. This ain't TikTok. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's going to take a minute. True. 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 It ain't going to be from a 10-second video. Or it, it might be. But, you know, good luck with that. Exactly, um, exactly. The bottom line of this is, is the film industry. This is an industry. You have to make money. You have to show that you can monetize the content, period. And it's messed up to say that, but when it really boils down to it, if you're trying to make the bucks, you got to show that you can aid in the monetization of content. Hey guys, I am Kaylee Cuoco. I am on The Flight Attendant on HBO Max, and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. How'd you end up getting into this interesting world of acting? You know, I have been doing this forever, my whole life. I've never had another job. And it was something when I was really little, you know, I was really into sports. And so my parents, I did multiple things when I was really young. I, I loved tennis. Obviously, I loved horses. And I would do all these, go to these art camps. And then I also auditioned. And it was like one of five things that I did. And I, my parents were very adamant about it's a very cheesy statement. I've said it a lot. It's not all your eggs in one basket. And so they didn't want me to just to be acting or just to be playing tennis or just to focus on this. They got a little worried about me getting too heady. And so I was so young and I think it helped with heartbreak and it helped with learning. Not every day is great and you don't get every job. And so I would kind of, oh, this audition, I didn't get that. Well, now I'm heading to go to my tennis tournament or I'm heading to do this. And I did so many things as a kid that there was never that, oh my God, I didn't get that. And that has really transferred into my entire mm. career. I am truly able to kind of close the door and move right through. But I have been doing this my whole life. I mean, we have home videos of my dad. I was probably four, five, six years old, literally saying, okay, happy face, sad face, surprise mm -hmm. face. I, I would do, we would every night and I couldn't wait to do it. And I'd be like this close to the camera. He's like, you need to back up. I could not get close enough to the camera. I mean, you got to go. You got to move back, Kaylee. Kaylee, move back. That was like every video. Move back, move back. 
Well, um, you, you, you knew the close-up was an important thing at an early age. I now, did. How, how did you, how did you like hone? So, all right. So you hop in, you, you've got tennis, you've got acting, you've got horses, you've got a variety of interests. How are you getting, how are you like getting better in each one? Like, did you have like an acting coach? Did you have a, a, a tennis trainer? Like, what was it? What was it like? So as far as the acting thing was interesting, I got a, I went to an acting class very early on. I was probably nine or 10 years old and I had a really bad experience. The teacher at the time, actually, I'm going to fast forward. You know, at the SAG Awards, how certain actors will talk at the very beginning and say like mm-hmm. 10 cents. It's like an, I'm an actor. But this acting coach that I had, he told me that I will never make it and that the she calls my, my type of acting and my type of energy pots and pans acting. And she said that in front of all my peers, all these 10, 12, 14-year-olds in front of everybody. And I said, what does that mean? And she goes, all you do is you bang around and that's pots and pans acting. You're loud and you, you're knocking into things emotionally and you're not grounded. And I never, ever forgot that. I got in the car, cried my eyes out. My mom made me go back the next week. She goes, I need you to go back one more time and then you can decide. I went back, ended up being the top of this class. And this right. teacher this day, and I never forgot that, but she, it was traumatizing. I mean, I was 10 and I still remember. But I knew, I think for me, as far as like honing my craft, which I can't stand that, that sentence, but it's part of my soul. I, I was meant to beat this. I was meant to do this. It was truly who I was from very, very young, a young age. I knew I would never have a normal job. I knew, I knew from five, six, seven years old, when my parents sat me down after I got my first big project and they were like, this is a real job. Do you really want to do this? And I was like, there was no question. But from then on, I kind of, I go by my gut and I'm very reactive and I've kind of taken that with me through my career and kind of trusted my instinct. And you know, I mean, we work together. I'm very, I kind of am in the moment. (laughs) I'm not not sitting, studying and how should I do this? I like to be in it, especially with what I'm working with. And Feeler, right. but that's how I was my whole life. All right. So going back to the kind of earlier years when you were getting started, like how did you get that first, you know, big break, if we shall? So I did a lot of small, I did a million commercials when I was younger, but I did a lot of small guest spots and just slowly, slowly, slowly started kind of building my resume, but a lot of small, small thing. I did this film when I was, my God, I must have been eight years old. It was called Virtuosity. I'll never forget this. And it was Russell Crowe's first American film. And Mm -hmm. Denzel Washington was the hero. And Mm -hmm. Kelly Lynch played my mom. And I was, Kelly and I both had blunt, short haircut bangs. We looked, I literally looked like her mini. And I played her daughter. And we thought this was going to be like the biggest film. Like, Mike, that was it. I was the Dakota Fanning of my time. Like, this is it. My career, this is going to be huge. The experience was unbelievable. I still remember it like it was yesterday. It was such a flop. What? So bad. In my mind, it was ahead of its time. But that's just me trying to defend this movie that I thought was going to change my life. People aren't ready. They're not always ready. They weren't ready. They weren't ready. But the experience was unbelievable. Like you were bringing up that name and I didn't remember what shocked me, the character name, because I remember this film. I remember Mm -hmm. Denzel. I remember his trailer that was filled with, he had a big weight trailer that he did all his workouts. And I remember Russell Crowe. It was like one of the coolest experiences of my life. But that was like what I thought was my big break. It wasn't. 
I remember this film and and what I'm... You do? I remember... Well, there, there was something about like they were here. Was there a devil or, or they were like hearing something? The, it, and, was, it, it wasn't it was a devil. They It was... What is the name of it? it where you're in the... Your alternate reality... Um, uh-huh, what's the name? Uh-huh. What's the? I don't know the term. I'm I'm spacing out, but it, it, that's why I say it was ahead of its time because it was mm-hmm. like futuristic. Like you wear the you're in the machine and you can go into different worlds. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. say it's Avatar, but maybe two percent. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, and that was wait, that was I have it right here. A that long was ninety five. There you go. That's ninety five. Okay. So. And at that point, God, that was like right before like artificial intelligence sort AI. of thing. There you go. Yeah, AI. Yeah. yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, oh, seven. This is oh bugging God, me. I'm I'm remember. There was just there was some character, whatever. There was some character name that they were constantly they were trying to find, and it was a weird name. Like uh, now, nah, I, I, I can't. In virtuosity. In virtuosity. Oh, how some, funny. It was like some really? like other name for the devil or, or something like that. And they were like trying to find, and there was a lot of like shaky camera, like. Yeah. Really, oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I saw it. But, you know. Well, I that, appreciate that. Yeah. You know that. But I, I think I've probably seen most Russell Crowe films in every Denzel Washington film. Same. I know. That yeah. was, I ran into him a couple years ago and I'm like, do, do I say I was in that movie? And I brought it up and I was, I had to, I had to, I had to. I'm like, you're never going to remember this. And he did. He's like, that movie wasn't very good. I'm like, no, it wasn't. But it, it's a memory I have for the rest of my life. He's right. like, I totally but get that, it. That check cleared, though. That check, that check cleared. cleared. Yeah. So, so that was definitely not my break. But I think Eight Simple Rules, the John Ritter show, what's my break? I mean, that was like, it also told me how much I love comedy, told me how much I love sitcom. I love making people laugh. That was, that definitely, I think, put my comedy, like, I don't know, career on the not a little bit. Yeah. And I, I loved it. I loved it. I loved sitcom. And then obviously, I mean, I owe everything to Big Bang. I really do. So for playing the multiple Cassies, you know, what the hell was that like? Well, I agreed to it a long time ago. And then when I started playing 17 Cassies, I'm like, who agreed to this? Yeah. yeah. No, it was great. Look, experience of a lifetime never done anything like that obviously that, and working with that sort of camera and like that was such an interesting wild experience with the multiples it was you know it was a little much at times but it was awesome and then seeing the cuts and stuff going oh my god and learning how to you think like you're looking like obviously i had this amazing double everyone knows her name is monette i had multiple doubles but monette who played basically my other Cassie the whole time. And her and I became so exact in what we were doing. She was a huge part of this show. I make sure I tell everybody that because I want her to get credit and I feel like she's not going to. And she was, I couldn't have done this without her. She was truly my double, my acting double, my friend, everything. And, but we had such a way that I was able to look at her and we were the exact same height. And then you'd go watch and you're like, why does it look like I'm like, I had to learn because we don't really, and then working against like a green screen or like a tennis ball or like myself for these other doubles. And like, it just was, it was wild. And it was a huge learning experience, especially for someone who the hardest part for me, because I love to wing it. I couldn't do that with stuff like that. No, no, no couldn't wing it and couldn't be like, sure. Like I had to be really exact, which was very hard for me. 
What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right. That was episode 44 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. I hope you all enjoyed. I will uh, be coming back to you next week with, let me check my calendar here. Uh, Next week we will have, aha, Ellen Rappaport, the creator and showrunner of Minx. Um, And we'll be talking about her journey and about that wonderful show. And I hope you all join. So in the meantime, of course, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating. Peace.